Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Welcome back to the Petronas Podcast. My name is Trisha Curtis. I am the CEO of Petronas and the host of the Petronas Podcast. This is, it is Thursday, uh, July 27th, um, 2023, and this is episode 89 of the Petronas Podcast. And it is a special treat today because this is my interview. Um, this podcast is my interview with none other than Harold Hamm, the former CEO, but now chairman of Continental Resources, um, a notorious company that um, it was a prolific, has, has been prolific since the beginning in the box. Um, is now in the Powder River Basin, is in the Anadarko Basin, and has um, picked up assets across the country over the years, but was public and is now private. So a, a really fantastic interview with Harold Hamm. I'll talk about that more shortly. Um, but I also want to talk about what's going on in the world today. So this, this interview was, took place in, um, in June, which is important to timestamp because Harold does talk about, um, before he actually did the interview with me, we, he was talking about oil prices on stage and the trajectory of the market. And um, within the podcast, we talk about the macro and his views of what's going on and the state of the industry. So important to think about. Right now at Thursday, July 27, 2023, we are looking at WTI at 79.73. We have touched $80 a barrel for WTI. Brent's at 84.24. Henry Hub is at 2.49. The 10-year or Dutch TTF is nine. Dutch TTF is under 10 bucks. It is about 9.70 right now. So uh, really seeing um, get, net gas prices getting smashed um, despite this warmer weather. And um, so 10-year yield, big story here. And we're going to talk about what has been going on in the market and what's really driving oil prices in the last few weeks. Uh, but the 10-year yield is above 4%. We are seeing mortgage rates. If you just Google this new bank rate, you're seeing mortgage rates at 7.23%. You're probably seeing that just above 7% on um, if you're looking at like the CNBC ticker. So big story going on there. So GDP comes out today. It's hotter than expected. The market is rallying on this. Yesterday, Jerome Powell and the Fed raised interest rates a quarter point. That is after last month where they just paused and didn't do anything. Um, so we ra raised rates a quarter point. Now, we're going to talk about what's driving oil prices, and we're going to talk about a couple other things, which is um, the, one of the drivers being actual production, um, what the Saudis are doing with these cuts, whether or not that's working. And then we're going to talk about inflation and interest rates and high oil prices. So what we are seeing with regards to inflation, so the Fed raised rates, we have saw, we did see headline inflation at 3%. So headline inflation came down. Now, Jerome Powell was sort of bragging about this a little bit yesterday, saying the headline inflation is what people feel, and that makes them feel good, and that's all good. The problem is that if you're looking at food inflation, food away from home, food inflation is still 5.8%, food away from home is 7.7%. So those are the price increases. The fact that they're not even close to 2% is really problematic because that's Core, it, core inflation is when you're excluding food and energy. And really, that's what matters to the consumer. So that's why Jerome Powell is saying, hey, headline inflation, when that comes down, that's great. But the consumer is actually feeling the core inflation. And the real driver of that drop in core inflation down to 3% is the 16.7% drop in energy prices. Now, you'll see where I'm going with this because that gets pretty complicated when oil, when WTI is pushing near 80 bucks. And if you're following news and headlines and Financial Times and Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg, you're seeing that the Biden administration getting flack because oil prices and gasoline prices are edging up. Well, that's what happened. So we are at, in this precarious time now where we have high oil prices, higher in, high, still high inflation and persistent inflation and high um, interest rates. That, and yes, everybody thinks that now because we have this higher GDP print, consumer uh, 
spending was a little better than expected. And because travel and leisure are still really, really holding up. We talked about that last week with this, you know, very resilient jobs data, all largely in travel and leisure because so many people are still traveling that all this resiliency, everybody's thinking that we're going to have a soft landing. Um, now, the Fed was pretty clear, Jerome Powell was pretty clear that the the pathway exists for a soft landing. Um, it's not a wide one. And I would say that, you know, this is largely just kicking the can down the road. Um, and this looks more like we're, we're all these problems are sort of building up because now you have the high interest rates, you have the high inflation, um, and you have high oil prices. Now, and the problem is that those high oil prices are pushing against, are pushing up on inflation, which is going to probably drive the Fed to raise rates more or at least hold them there longer. And that is what the market has been banking on them cutting rates. Now the market's just rallying because the market wants to rally. Uh, that doesn't mean the stuff isn't real and that it's, it is positive, but it does mean there's a lot of stuff sort of building up to be problematic. And that persistent inflation is one of them. Housing being extremely resilient is a big problem with that too, because shelter costs are very high. And because housing is so expensive and because interest rates are high and the ability for the average person to just sell their existing home and then go buy a new home is very limited, that means that less people are selling and that means limited inventory. Now, if you're looking at actual housing construction data, there's some pretty significant leading indicators, stuff that I walk clients through. And if you're looking at apartments versus actual single unit homes, we're already showing that we're basically, you, those are leading indicators that tell you a lot. Um, apartments haven't declined yet, but single family homes have. And they declined pre-recession in 2008, well before the recession. So we've already started peaking there and declining, which means that maybe this recession isn't immediate, but it is coming at some point. And this, all this positive economic data and this, um, this resiliency within the economy, it is inflationary. Um, and it is problematic because I think there's two things that aren't really well talked about. And that's that um, the work from home inflation, and the, which is driving up the leisure and hospitality and causing consternations in the market. And then, the, um, and then housing, just the, the fiscal lag and the housing money lag. So when people were able to take 3% interest or, or lower on their mortgages, or they were pull, able to pull equity out on their mortgages, I think we're seeing a lot of people live off that and spend off that. And maybe that has incentivized them to where they, they have less incentive to work more hours. They have a less incentive to return to work or they're retiring early. So there's a lot of that. Um, student loans, as we've talked about, students have not yet paid back those student loans. They're going to. This could be a headwind for the economy um, as well. And it, it should be positive for inflation because students need to start paying back these loans. And that is money that people are already complaining that they'll be that they don't have the money as it is. So we're seeing a lot of folks in the younger end already delinquent on credit card debt. We're definitely seeing credit card debt really ratchet up. Wait for that New York Fed survey that's going to come out with the next quarterly figures. I think we're really going to see credit card debt ratchet up. We're seeing auto loan debt up. We're seeing people not getting auto loans now. Um, that's a pretty big problem because we have trillions of dollars in auto loans, trillions of dollars in credit card debt now, and trillions of dollars within student loan debt. So add that all up, they're largely the similar consumers. And so what this means is that, you know, and that means that all these same people are having, are paying these higher rental costs. And you're starting to hear more and more stories about that of people living with their folks, people living in basements, um, and more and more people living together. Um, and these job situations where we have this, so that's inflationary where we have um, this sort of lag, right? Where people are, had all this uh, fiscal stimulus from their housing, right? Or, or stimulus potentially from home equity. Then you still have this massive fiscal lag where the government is spending $2 trillion and going to have a $2 trillion deficit. And so that's really aiding and abetting inflation, which is something the Fed does not want to talk about. And the Fed was asked directly, Jerome Powell was asked directly about 
wages and the union strikes and the, the wage negotiations taking place. UPS was one of them. You're seeing a lot of this. That is wage inflation where these people are going on strike and they're, then they're getting, um, they're getting uh, benefits. And so that's causing wage prices to increase. That's causing costs to increase. That's inflationary. He said he didn't want to basically touch that topic. The problem is that you hear other governments like the UK address that. We did see the European Central Bank talk about higher interest rates. Their optimism for a soft landing doesn't really exist anymore because they're already heading into recession. If you are following um, the manufacturing data, and this is not good out of the US, it is not good out of your Eurozone, it is not good out of Germany, it's not really good anywhere. So we're seeing manufacturing really slump. Um, I think there's interesting stuff going on with copper prices and other commodity prices being leading indicators for recession. That'll get us to talking about China in just a moment. Uh, but the other thing I think on the labor side and the U.S. housing side, and I know I've mentioned this, but or not, sorry, not U.S. housing, but the U.S. economy. I think the the stickiness in the labor market is extremely important to understand, and it is this work from home lag, and also has serious implications with commercial real estate. So commercial real estate is that other shoe to drop that is looming and out there, and it's people are walking away from commercial real estate, and the problem is is that people have not gone back to work. Offices are not, or employers are not mandating that most of their, almost all their employees return to work full-time. So return to the office full-time. So they are returning to work. I would wager that a lot of them, the when you're seeing output per hour down and productivity, so the productivity or the output per hour is down and you're seeing the average hourly work week around 34 hours, that means that people are not working as much. And we are definitely seeing that where people are choosing, and when, and when we're talking about work from home, people will choose to take a, a, a pay cut to work from home. And so if you're thinking about people not going to work on Mondays or not going to work on Fridays, they're traveling more. And that is creating this inflation in the system to where if you're traveling, if you're going anywhere, you're seeing everyone and their dog also do it because they have Mondays and Fridays off. It's changing traffic patterns. Uh, it is insane when you're going to the Denver International Airport and to DIA, it is an absolute mess there right now, partly because of the construction, but it's, it's just incredibly busy. And it feels to me like a lot of people just are not working. And I think this is extremely serious is creating serious inflation and is this this major lag. And the reality is this does have to catch up with businesses because they're going to, if, if you're seeing that in the productivity data, it means that businesses are losing money and they're also paying more for employees, especially with these, with these strikes and all these wage negotiations taking place. So all those things are sort of mixing around. And then obviously today when you have the positive GDP printer, better than expected and better consumer spending, there's a lot of spending being done on credit cards, okay? And we're seeing 23% interest rate on credit cards. That's going up when interest rates go up. That is a big problem. These This is not an immediate problem because they're still spending, right? People still have jobs. The moment any job cuts happen, and the Fed was careful about talking about that, but they did say job, we are going to have to see unemployment rise. They think it's just going to be a little bit. Now, when this happens, and when you start seeing this to cool off the economy, actually controlling it is a little harder than that. So I think that's going to be a lot trickier. But these whipsawing economic views and everything I just talked about, all that is impacting oil prices and the sentiment around oil prices. The other thing impacting oil prices is that it's pretty thin trading right now. So if you're looking at oil prices and you're seeing oil prices at 80, 79, where we've seen these, these pops, that was a, a lot of bets, right? That's headline, that's algorithmic trading, and that's thin trading volumes that are driving up oil prices. And we are seeing some very mixed, extremely mixed data out of China. I wouldn't even say mixed data. We're seeing, uh, you you hear the, the Politburo meeting that just happened a few days ago in China. They basically left the phrase out that said 
quote, housing is for living. And because they left that phrase out, it gave uh, everybody a, a lot of excitement that you're going to see more money going to the housing sector. The problem in China is that it is not places like Shanghai and Beijing, the tier one cities that are having housing price declines. There's still demand there. It's all the other cities. And when you're talking about a population of 1.4 billion people, there's a lot of cities and a lot of tier two, tier three, tier four cities that are not doing well at all economically. And we're seeing um, very high youth unemployment, which we know those numbers are already cooked, but they're above 20, well above 20% youth unemployment. We're seeing um, what we saw last week and we saw are seeing that disinflation data where they're, um, they're basically at 0% inflation, that they're also probably cooking that number. Um, and we're also seeing their exports down. So all those together are telling you a more, a more nuanced and complicated story. Um, and it's really hard for me to jive that with oil prices as well to say that all this demand in China is ripping when they're, uh, they have a disinflation story and they have high youth unemployment and they haven't all gone back to work and they're not ripping on the stimulus side. So something's missing there. We are seeing the stock market or the Hang Seng Index go up. Please be careful in thinking about the these stocks. They are not a store of value. People do not typically buy Chinese stocks as a store of value. That's why they that's why they have problems in real estate because they buy housing as a store of value, and they don't buy stocks the same way we do, where we buy and hold stocks. So that's just a trade. Um, and if you're if you're in the U.S. market and you're doing that, that is simply a trade. And you are hearing still a lot of people push the bullish sentiment on China. This was propped up by Janet Yellen going over there by John Kerry, which is just complete ridiculous. The climate czar going over to um, going over to China as well. Um, Henry Kissinger, who's 100 years old, was just in, in China as well. So you have a lot of people really pushing pushing these, uh, calming the ties between the U.S. and China. And the problem is, is that if you're actually following Chinese commentary, you're following Chinese media, if you're looking at the People's Daily, if you're reading the Chinese newspapers, nothing has changed, right? Xi Jinping's stance on what he's doing is continuing down the same path. Um, they are not a friendly nation to the U.S. They do not believe in the same values as the U.S. The human rights abuses have continued. Nothing has changed at all. The only thing that's changed is the U.S. would like to um, be talking to them more in hopes that we'll get something out of it, which we're not getting anything out of it. When John Kerry was mentioning uh, coal, that's falling on deaf ears. China's not going to reduce their coal-fired power generation anytime soon, if ever, uh, because that is energy security for them. Now, the China story gets a little more complicated when we're talking about oil prices because we're talking about, you know, what has China actually, the demand growth that we've seen, if you're listening to the IEA or OPEC, they've shown that, hey, China has has increased demand pretty considerably. But we haven't really seen that in the economic data. Something else you see in the IEA report is a mention of the stock building in China. And I do believe that we are definitely seeing some real stock building within China with regards to crude oil. They're buying over 2 million barrels a day, nearly two, over 2.2 million barrels a day from Russia right now. So they're buying that at a massive discount. That's definitely helping on the inflationary side. And then they are, um, they're probably stockpiling a decent amount of that because their economy is not demanding it. And so when you're hearing about the rising demand within China the first half of the year, the significant growth we're going to have the second half of the year and the stock building. I don't think you can have all three. I think that's way too much. And so that's partly what's with the thin traded volumes with all these whipsawing economic views. That's what's happening with oil prices right now. And then the other piece um, is the Saudi cuts, right? You, We did see some real disintegration within OPEC. And I think that's really important to point out is that the last couple of meetings have not been these smooth, wonderful meetings. I went through the entire, every single speech and, and uh, you know, all the panels at the OPEC forum that was done a few weeks ago at the beginning of July. I listened to all of those. There was a lot of optimism, obviously, from the Saudis and the, and the OPEC minister with regards to, or the Saudi oil minister, with regards to the state of the market and how confident they were and how they were, you know, reaffirming the market. Now, they were really confident in their cuts. They were saying that they were going to keep the market on its toes. 
the fact that they're affirming the fact that they had to cut in the first place means that the market wasn't where it needed to be. Rarely do you have a really perfect and stable market when you have to cut because you don't have you and you don't have to cut unless you have demand issues. So they have cut the Saudi Arabia cut voluntarily a million barrels a day in July and August. Now, if they were really, really serious about it, they probably would have, they would have extended those. So we're going to have some issues with oil prices in after August when those cuts go away, unless they extend those. And the fact that they've, the Saudis have cut that we don't see down the data yet. We're for, we're, they're at 10 million barrels per day in May. So just under 10 million barrels per day in May. Um, and then there, we'll see if they go down to basically 8 million barrels per day um, or 9 million barrels per day, sorry, in, in June and continue that. Um, or July and continue that in August. And so that's what we're seeing right now is that if those cuts are real, we're seeing mat that materialize within the month of July. Um, the other thing is the, the, the problems with the, um, with the Russian cuts, right? We're, they're saying that Russia is going to cut output, but maybe not to the global market. Maybe they're just cutting output um, internally. Or, or restricting production and not restricting exports. That's pretty complicated. Um, that could have, uh, th that may have very muted if, if no effect on, on oil prices. So I think that's complicated. What is, what is happening is that um, Russian revenues that they're making up, they, prices actually moved above the uh, so-called price cap, which never worked at $60 a barrel. They notched above that just uh, slightly. Um, and so, I mean, Russian revenues, while they have declined from their pre-invasion highs um, of pre-war in Ukraine, they're still well north of $15, million, $15 billion. So it, they're still getting a lot of money from crude oil export revenues. And that's helping to fund this war in Ukraine, which is that's an ongoing and continual issue. Okay. So I think I've ranted on about the market for, for quite a bit. We definitely will have a, a deep dive in the China data um, in future podcasts. But this is uh, a fantastic podcast with Harold Ham. This is soup to nuts. We talk about the macro. We talk about the Bakken. We talked about the Powder River. We talked about going private. This is just really a fantastic conversation. Um, you guys are going to love it. But lastly, I do want to mention um, the Barbie movie. And the reason if you know me at all and you've listened to the podcast, you know where I'm going with this. Um, I do have plenty of criticisms with the Barbie movie, but really it is about uh, it is about the China map that's in the Barbie movie. And I'd heard about this before I saw it. I took my nieces there over the weekend and I'd heard about this China map. And, you know, I listened to people commentate on it and they said, oh, it's just a Barbie map. These are just squiggly lines. This is silly. But then I just listened to just today. I listened to the CEO of Mattel on Bloomberg talking about this. And they were asked specifically about this map that had the nine dash line of China. And if you know anything about this, it's China has on their passports and their maps, they have this nine dash line where basically they, they circle a good chunk of the ocean and say this belongs to them. Now, obviously it doesn't belong to them because other countries, this is part of their territory waters or even countries. So Vietnam banned the movie because of this. So they're not they're not showing the movie. And so when the CEO of Mattel is asked about this, his answer, and truthfully, I'm not, I'm not trying to be, um, um, I'm not trying to joke too much about this, but his answer sounded way more like Kamala Harris's response to what is culture than it did, um, you know, did you put this map in? Are you favoring China? And when they asked about this map, he, he basically went nowhere. He said that, you know, we are trying to make a, a, an inclusive home essentially for everyone. Um, and obviously, if you're doing that and you put these these lines in it, it means that you did this because you want the Chinese market. And that matters to you more than the Vietnamese market or anyone else in Asia. And this is a perfect example of Hollywood and um, Hollywood self-censoring and doing this because they want exposure to this market and they want Barbie to sell in this market. Now, um, I listen 
listened to a book the other day that was just mentioning that uh, that was mentioning that in the past Mattel didn't do a good job of this because they actually they actually made the Barbies more Asian and what they wanted what the folks in China wanted was um, this stereotypical Barbie that was selling in the U.S. So I thought that was interesting. Um, but that being said, this map is a so basically it is a it is a, a squiggly there are squiggly lines. It's a cartoon or it's like a crayon map, but they show it a lot. It's not up there for a little bit. I'm pointing it to my nieces and I'm and like that map is up there for a while and they keep pointing to it. And then they're basically it's Asia and there's this it's eight dashes, not nine, but there's this line sort of squiggly stuff afterward. And clearly, you know, the CEO of Mattel could have gone up there and he could have said, hey, it, it's just a squiggly line. It had nothing to do with that. But he didn't. He basically just gave this inclusive argument, which says that is what he was doing. So I think that's really important to pay attention to, folks. Um, and yes, I wasn't a huge fan of the movie. I thought there was a lot of stuff in it, but I was more disappointed in Hollywood uh, with that eight dash line um, and pacifying China. So with that, guys, Really, really hope you enjoyed the podcast. And one last thing, I am interested in accepting Petronerd sponsorship or doing sponsorship for the Petronerd podcast. And the reason is I want to make sure that this podcast maintains rich in Intel and is out there for the public. So if you follow, um, if you follow Petronerd, if you follow this podcast, if you are a fan, if you use this Intel and this market information, um, it's important to have this out and have different voices in the public that are not just Bloomberg, that are not just CNBC, that are not just Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal. It's important to have different voices talking about the energy transition, ESG, talking about the oil space, looking at the macro, looking at the micro, understanding what individual operators are doing. If you are interested in this, I would love to partner with you. Petronerds would love to partner with you. And you can expect that this is going to be a Trisha Curtis Petronerd style sponsorship. It is not going to be a sticker that's put on YouTube. It is going to be a, a, you know, a conversation. I'm happy to have you on the podcast. Happy to talk about your business and what you guys are doing. But really, I'm going to be talking about you know the nerdiness of the company and the, and the cool stuff the company is doing um, and talking about it that way in, in sh short snippets. So if you guys are interested, I really look forward to these relationships um, and pursuing this. But if you guys are interested, please send me a direct message on uh, on LinkedIn or on Twitter and really appreciate it and looking forward to it. Thanks, guys. Bye. Harold Ham, it is a, like an absolute pleasure. Um, so it is a pleasure to have you on the Petronerds podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with Petronerds. Um, you will be after this, I'm sure, because I will inundate you. Um, but Petronerds podcast, I, this is, I don't know what episode this will be, but I've had 80 some episodes. Uh, Matt Gallagher has been on the podcast. Um, have lots, Chris Wright is a good friend of mine. He's been on the podcast. Um, so lots of CEOs are, are on. So this is um, very timely, but really awesome to do this in person. And I have followed you and your company and cut my teeth on Bach and Shale. Uh, my dad uh, was up running uh, the surface casing rig for EOG during the, when the boom was just starting in the Bakken. Um, my uncle was up there as well consulting for EOG, and I was in D.C. Um, studying it and looking at all the data and all the production data and explaining it to people. Um, and you guys were advocating for crude oil exports, um, which I thought was awesome because uh, even though your barrels were not going to get exported necessarily, you still believed in getting it exported. Um, and so you've always been sort of a forerunner in, in lobbying and pushing for things, uh, despite it necessarily directly helping you. So with that, that's a long sort of winded thing. But Harold, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And Very good. I'm glad to uh, be here. And uh, you've had some great people on, sound like. Yeah. Uh, Chris Wright is so smart. And Matt Gallagher is a wonderful person. Mm -hmm. uh, I thank the world of those guys. Yep. And, so you've had some uh, really good folks on. Yeah, so that's and, great. 
and just glad had to be here. awesome. I'm glad to have you. Um, and have so there's I mean, we can take this any direction you want to take it. If there's stuff you don't want to talk about, that's perfectly okay. Um, you can tell me just you know hands off. Um, but you're not really that type of guy. You kind of lean into it. Um, but I will say though, I I put up your your website in my presentation because um, I love that you have fiercely pro-American. Um, energy on it that and that is just not something you see in the industry on a regular and the fact that you're independent now um, and you're you're proud to be independent but you're also fiercely pro-american energy so I think I would like to take it from that of you're one of the you I mean companies talk about it a lot about taking their companies private but you actually did it um, and that's a very impressive feat um, so can you just talk can you I know you talked about that this morning but can you explain that for listeners of what was the process of that well, the process is pretty simple, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity. Uh, with us, uh, I did have the opportunity because, you know, we uh, when we went public, uh, we only sold 15% uh, of the company uh, at that time uh, to the public. And so we still own 85%. And yeah, we, we made another uh, uh, transaction later on uh, with the public and sold that down a little bit more, but then we bought back uh, over time. So uh, we yeah. only had to acquire some 16 per percent. Okay. Uh, and so it was, uh, it was kind of silly not to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we just weren't being paid, uh, you know, to be a public company. Uh, you know, we first went uh, public uh, in 2007, uh, you know, the, the companies were trading at a multiple of eight to nine, and, you know, uh, recently uh, they've been three to five. Mm -hmm. uh, so it just, it just didn't make any sense to go through all the hassle uh, for really no value. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I very much agree with that. I think um, it was an, I mean, personally, I think, and from an analyst perspective, it was an incredibly intelligent move. Um, and if you can do it, um, if companies can do it, I love how you were said earlier today in your panel, you said, uh, sorry if you're public. Um, and I, we can get into that because I think it's, one, it's really honest, um, but it's also a reality of that these, you know, these multiples um, in these companies say all the time, we're not being valued appropriately, so we're buying back our shares. And this is where I push back on the industry to be more honest about and telling the story of oil and gas because I think these public companies have lost their way a little bit. Um, not all of them, but we, we don't have enough public companies talking positively about oil and gas or telling their story of why they're investable. And if you're talking about ESG and the energy transition and that zero stuff, it's a very confusing story for an investor. And when the retail investor and the generalist investor have pulled out and you have this anti-oil and gas movement, um, you have the situation where and you have a, a you know an administration, a U.S. administration that says oil might be around, for, we might need it for 10 years. You get in a pickle of why would I invest in a, put this company in a, in my stock for long only um, if you're not going to be around in 10 years? And I think personally, I think operators have got to do a better job, um, public ones of and and private ones as well that you're doing of telling that story of why you should invest in me. Well, uh, some some companies. Uh you know, are slow to advocate for the industry. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, uh, you know, this is all about market share. And so uh, companies uh, are out there, they're very aggressive to uh, gain market share. And if they can gain market share uh, from the energy companies, they're going to do it. 
And so that, that's the battle. They, they, they like what we had mm -hmm. and what we have, and they want it. Mm -hmm. And so they're going after it, and, and, and that's the truth of the matter. So energy will be around uh, next uh, hundred years. Mm -hmm. Uh, absolutely, and we've done wonderful things. Uh, it, uh, the world runs on energy. We all know that. Uh, your clothes you wear, mm -hmm. uh, everything uh, that you do, uh, had to do with energy, oil, and gas. And uh, so we let's look at what we've done in America the last few mm -hmm. years. You know, we have the cleanest air because of the clean, burn natural gas. Uh, we're displacing some. Uh, heavier fuels, uh, and and that's good. And uh, over time, uh, so uh, yeah, people should speak up more and, and advocate for our industry. Because I think I mean, I'm not sure a lot of I, I know that industry leaders know it, but I'm not sure we appreciate how influential you know when a chart from the International Energy Agency comes out and it's their net zero chart, and people believe this, saying you know we can drop our we drop our demand and I was just telling people in that, the presentation I just gave is that that net zero by 2050 is a, tw is a 25 million barrel a demand drop by 2030, which means nobody at this conference has a job if we have a 25 million barrel demand drop by 2030, which we're not going to have, but that's what net zero is. And so when you're a public company, you're saying, I'm, I heart net zero and I'm signing onto this, you have to understand what that means. And you know, it's easy, it's real easy to make claims. Uh, you know, you mm -hmm. can make all these claims about, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to <laughs> build muscle, <Yeah. laughs> you know, I'm going to be, uh, you know, spectacular in a few days. Uh -huh. Really? Uh, maybe not. Uh, it's real easy to make all these net zero claims. I saw where uh, Formula One racing, uh, I've always been a race enthusiast, uh, and so when down to Miami and saw Formula mm -hmm. One recently. And uh, I was impressed with it, for sure. One of the claims I wasn't impressed with was that we're gonna be net zero by 2030. Really? Let's see what you're doing now. You're picking up everything that you have at a site in Miami, and the next week you're over in Italy. Yep. So next week, now how'd you get there? Well, we all flew. Mm -hmm. On jet fuel. And yet you're going to be, how's it going, by 2030, how are you going to change that? You know, uh, maybe you stay at one site? I don't think so. No. Uh, so, you know, it's just false claims. It is. A lot of false claims. And yeah. you guys, I mean, we can, there's lots of things we can unpack with that, but you as a business and a company, um, and I know you did it when you were public, but it seems like you probably have a lot more flexibility in being private. Um, and I do want to come back to that because you said something amazing today about 20% time savings being private, which is, that's a whole fascinating piece, which I, I, I mean, I agree with it, and, but that's a, that's a lot of time. Um, and I, we can come back to that. But as a private company, do you, do you have more uh, flexibility in the education space and the ability to sort of push back on this narrative and help educate? I know you guys have 
um, energy investor programs, and I, bet I was talking to your, your colleagues and your folks on your communications team last night, and you guys are doing incredible education efforts within Oklahoma. Um, but, you know, as we're talking, I think we both, there's a need to go beyond Oklahoma. Um, and Oklahoma is a, I'd love to spend some time there. It's a wonderful oil and gas producing state, but there's a lot of states that don't understand this or believe in oil and gas, and I feel like the education needs to get out there. So, all right, what do you guys do? What do you do in this space, and how do we, how do we help with that, and how do you guys help with that? Well, we do have some more time. Uh, you know, we all stay busy, and and I stay extremely busy. Uh, so, education is one of those things, uh, and uh, our advocacy uh, out with the public is very, very important. And how can we be more effective, do a better job, uh, tell our story better? Uh, so, Oklahoma's doing that. Uh, you know, with the involvement of uh, Mike Rowe, mm -hmm. uh, we've been able to tell that story, how the American workers uh, out there making a real living, doing a real job, uh, is making a huge difference in, in the country and, and uh, with families and, and economies, uh, communities. Mm -hmm. And uh, sure, uh, we need to do that nationally as well. Um, and given uh, the presentation, you know, your conversation um, and with Carl Rove and the conversation we had early this morning, do you think it's, um, and the, we know we have a lot of pushback in Washington. I, I spend a decent amount of time in Washington. I work a lot on China issues and, um, and, and domestic energy issues, but in, in global issues. And there does seem to, I mean, the administration doesn't have one, they don't have anyone that really understands hydrocarbons to start with. Um, some folks believe that's intentional or might not be intentional, but um, do you think there's a, that we will have an opportunity to really push that and shift, that this will shift back? Um, because that's the narrative we sort of get from a lot of industry leaders is that, you know, when we have a crisis and things all go to hell in handbasket, it'll work out for everyone because they'll come back to reality. But thus far, we haven't had a lot of coming back to reality yet. No, but everything changes, you know. It changes with the, each administration. It changed with the Trump administration. It changed with the Biden administration. It'll change with the next one, uh, which will probably be pretty quickly. Uh, and I think too that, you know, sometimes we take all these things a little too personal. You know, this, basically this administration, they're, they're pushing back on everything that means anything to anybody in America. Mm -hmm. You think about it, uh, you know, whether it's healthcare or whatever else, you know, they're, they're meddling, they're mm -hmm. pushing back, they're working against us. You can have the average American out here today, uh, you know, is our government very supportive of them? Are they working hard for them? Most people say no. So uh, we, we take it kind of personal, this business. Mm -hmm. Are they against us? Yes. Are they against a lot of what America does? Yes. Yeah, and I would say that's why I always say, um, you know, I'm usually wearing cowboy boots and um, I say I'm, you know, I claim Wyoming more than Colorado, especially politically. Um, but I would say when you go to rural America, and I'm sure you experience this in Oklahoma, it does feel like this, I, I explain to people, especially in Denver, is that it feels like they're very anti, not just the administration, but kind of the far left are very anti these people and because they like beef and they raise cattle and they are farmers and ranchers and they're you know being told to not eat beef anymore and they're being told not to raise cattle because of the methane emissions and it's you know one it's very healthy to actually but, eat you know, meat. just ask it's, yourself i mean just think about that a minute who would have thought 
that the farmers that's feeding all of America would be under fire. Mm -hmm. Who would be against farmers out there, you know, dirt farmers? Yep. Uh, yet people pushing uh, back against them and everything that they do, you know, out there trying to make a living. Yeah. So it, it's, a, it's hard to believe. Uh, are we in a huge mess today in America politically? Yes. Um, and you think that, but you think that's going to shift, or hopefully will shift, and we can move toward more normalcy in business, not just for oil and gas, but in everything. We hope. Yes, we hope. Um, well, most I've talked politics on any of these podcasts because I usually I usually try to see clearly and focus on energy, but we'll shift this back to energy. Um, so you, you, I want to go back to the the private piece because you you mentioned this morning really well of explaining that twenty percent time savings, and that's I don't I mean I always look at companies. I Matt Gallagher, you know, went from. Uh, Parsley, which was public, and then Green Lake Ventures, which is, which is private. And I had an opportunity to go in and visit their team in their offices. And most of the team is from former Parsley employees. But it was like they were very happy people. They love Matt. You know, he's, he's a, like you said, a great person, genuine leader, and, um, and really has, you know, a, a great following. And people just love him. But his team was like, oh, it's, there's like a burden off them. There's this, you know, ability to actually, you know, focus on the business when you're not public. And yes, you have private equity backers and you have your board meetings and stuff, but it's, it's different. It is, it's very different. Uh, you know, with uh, companies like Matt that's coming up from the bottom again, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you just gotta do the work. And you're, you're not going to get any uh, uh, your name's not going to be in lights, okay? Okay, that's okay. You know, just do the work and build the company up. Mm -hmm. And that's what we, we did. Uh, you know, we built Continental for 40 years before we ever became a public company. And we need to do that. Uh, you know, we were one of the original, very original com companies in the Bakken. Mm -hmm. And we had all this acreage we had to hold and develop. Uh, we had to have a quick, uh, uh, you know, the infusion of, of cash in order to be able to do that. And so that, that served our purpose. Right. And uh, let us do that. Uh, and, you know, the timing was okay with being public. Uh, that changed then um, changed drastically. And so you don't need to be doing that anymore. But Matt, uh, you know, they'll do good. Yeah, they'll do great. Oh, and do great. being able to be a you know, for, I believe they're NGP backed. So being able to get backing and funding during 2020 was, I mean, we all know that was a pretty impossible feat. And the fact that they were able to do is, you know, yeah. um, it's cause of that, so it'll be successful. But no, I think, I mean, the Bakken, I know well, I think we, we forget a lot of, I love the Bakken cause it's a uh, Oreo cookie, you know, it's, it's not a simple formation, but it's known, it's our, it's our oldest unconventional oil play now. Um, and it's awesome. I mean, I would love to talk a little bit about the, the life you think it has left. Um, and I know you, years ago, you talked about the 24 billion barrels in the Bakken and people thought you were crazy. I did not. Um, and touted it. That was, you know, Lee Price's old work from the 1970s was talking about 70 billion barrels and you were on the record for saying 24 billion. And I, the market didn't really appreciate that then. Um, and I still think they're a little bit, they don't appreciate, you know, what the rock can really give. 
um, but you were early on. There was a there was a Wall Street Journal article several years ago that said something about um, was talking about some of the beginners in the Bakken, like Continental and EOG, and saying. I think it was somebody, it was Mark Papa, maybe saying, he said, if we knew what we had had, we could have bought a lot more of it. Um, but we didn't really know. I'm curious, you know, we'll start the, like, did you know what you had in the Bakken? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, uh, we started out early on, unlike a lot of people, we mapped, uh, began to map the Bakken. Uh, this started out in Montana, Montana side, uh, before anybody was really aware, uh, you know, and we, that was 1996. Oh, like Billings Nose area, Montana side? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, you know, Richland County, Montana. Mm -hmm. And uh, so nobody was doing anything with it. Uh, everybody thought it was uncommercial, probably was at that point early on. And, but we mapped it out and we thought, wow, this is going to be big. And then we started looking for the rest of at North Dakota, uh, and you know it was uh, amazing how we went about uh, acquiring all the acreage and and being able to do it without everybody getting all over us. Uh, you know we did it under a hundred different names uh, with a lot of brokers. Mm -hmm. Uh, scattered out, they didn't know what was going on. Right. Nobody and knew it was you guys? Nobody knew. Uh, so did we know ahead? Sure we did. Uh, we didn't know how great it would be, uh, but we, we put some numbers on it pretty big right off the bat. Uh, USGS was saying four billion barrels and yep. we had a lot bigger numbers You were saying that. seven billion, you know, I, at that time you guys were saying seven? seven. Yep. Right. Uh, you know, when we, uh, later on, it, that number grew to 22 or 3, uh, I think it's probably closer to 35. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and you know, it's the, what we considered uh, uh, initially that would be tier 2 rock, uh, basically making tier 1 type wells out yep. of it. Uh, so it, it keeps going on and, uh, you know, will there be a, uh, you know, EUR probably, uh, EOR, excuse yep. me, uh, probably. Uh, we're, we're seeing some methods already being deployed that look pretty, uh, pretty good. Uh, so uh, it keeps going on. Uh, it, you know, it, it was the first real uh, shale play, yep. uh, first real oil shale play in the world. Uh, so. It's, it's just pretty fantastic it all the way around. Um, and, and it has a great story. You guys have that with it. Um, and it's something I always think about when, when people say, you always hear young engineers talk about, oh, the Bakken is done because the wells are all drilled up and there's no more, the spacing's done and there's no more wells left to drill. And I always make them sort of, you know, hold that for a, a moment because as you know, as you've explained well, the evolution of this has evolved. And I thought, well, you know, if these companies didn't like what they have, I've, I've heard so many private equity companies wanting to buy acreage in the Bakken. So one, it's fascinating that they say it's all drilled up, but I, there's interest by people, and the interest because the rock's great, but they can't buy anything. 
That's because it's all taken up. And, and then they say, well, we could just, you know, why doesn't Continental or Hess or somebody sell us a chunk? And I thought, they're not selling you a chunk because for a good reason. I mean, they may not, you don't have, if you've held your acreage by production, you can hold on to that. There's no rush to do anything. But I mean, the fact that you mentioned the, the tier two acreage, and um, I think that that'll probably get expanded, um, spacing, little tinkering on completions, but also the three forks of, I did those geology classes, um, you know, back in the day where they do the five hour geology classes, you know, with the petroleum conferences. And I'm the only non-geologist in these classes. And I'm looking at this rock and I think I'm the only person thinking, how can we, can you land a well bore in this thing? And but that three forks was, you know, at the time very iffy. It was just that upper thing. But we've seemed to go lower in the three forks, and everyone said that wasn't possible either. Um, that you we, we weren't going to get multiple benches out of the three forks, and that that seems to be disproven as well. well let me tell you about three forks. <laughs> That's an interesting story. Uh, initially, you know, we was looking at all the rock we could, all the cores and. And Julia LaFever. Yeah, uh, she was the cla in the classes uh, and she was uh, awesome. She'd lay out all the cores that uh, had ever been taken through mm -hmm. through the Bakken, and uh, and three forks, uh, you know. And so, an early examination, uh, me and Neil Olson and a couple other geologists from my office, uh, they're looking through all those cores. And, uh, and anyway, it's interesting that uh, I can see shows down in Three Forks. Uh, but, you know, how did that get down there? And, you know, our, our crew didn't have an explanation for it. It had to have been pushed down somewhere. Or, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't anything that would have generated uh, a wall up, uh, for sure. And so, I thought, well, boy, there's not going to be but one way to know, and we have to test it. And so all of my team was like, oh, that's crazy, you know. No, that's, uh, we're going we're to test it. So we did did that. With so their, no one had done it yet? Nobody tested yeah. it. Uh, so anyway, we did it with the Mathestad well, and, uh, and sure enough, uh, we had about as much production out of uh, three forks as it was getting out of the metal mocking. And, and anyway, all those people that said, boy, this ham's crazy, yeah. uh, pretty soon was saying, well, they wouldn't say it, they're just out there drilling it. Yep. Uh, you know, half the rigs uh, was drilling three forks mm -hmm. within a year. Yep. And, and that's uh, how quick that happens. Uh, but. You know, it, it turned out, I mean, we had uh, four levels of three forks that produced. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, it's, uh, it's pretty phenomenal. And, uh, you know, pretty soon instead of drilling uh, four, six, eight wells to the pad, you're drilling 16 to 20. Yep. Uh, so it's, it's, been, it's been pretty phenomenal. Uh, so it's uh, the field, uh, it keeps giving in a big way, and uh, you know you produce million one uh, mm -hmm. with the number of rigs we have running. You're maintaining production, uh, so maintaining growing. Our our production has grown this last year. 
And productivity's been really hung in there. I mean, productivity was actually, I mean, it, it has not come down at all, but in fact, it was, it was pretty high in, in 2022. So, I mean, there's not a material, I was, I was thinking about the Bakken of that, you know, it's the first shale play, like you mentioned, the oldest unconventional oil play. Um, but then everyone quickly moved to the Permian and the Eagleford and everything. And I think the Bakken sort of lost some love and didn't have, I think, as advanced tinkering of completions um, and, you know, of, and I was thinking it has more to give from a refract standpoint, from even maybe just even modest tinkering of completions that to sort of, that just hasn't had the love because operators haven't needed to, uh, to go after as crazy because they're preoccupied with other oil plays. Yeah, it, our technology keeps evolving. We find better ways uh, to do things uh, every, every year than we still are. It's, uh, so, you just uh, have to keep getting better, and and one thing about the Bakken, and uh, this is when these true shale developments, you can have the unit here, and if it's been undrilled, drill everything around it, everything else is, you know, uh, been produced and somewhat depleted, and go in and drill that unit that's never been drilled, it'll produce like a, a as an original. Undrilled, uh, undepleted mm -hmm. uh, unit. The shale is completely different from anything else in the world, and it took a lot of people a long time to realize that. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's the difference in what you have. So the difference between other shales and the Bakken. It's a bit different. Uh, the shales are different than anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Yeah. You know, anything else. Uh, than conventional production is totally unconventional. Yes, and that's, I think, uh, I mean, when I was studying on the Bakken and cutting my teeth on it, when I'd go and I, if I, if you've, you've probably been to Saudi Arabia and been abroad and talked to these folks, they don't understand it the same way. I, they're understanding it better now, but I think it's interesting that OPEC is cutting, you know, they're cutting output as U.S., and they didn't mention U.S. shale, but we've, we're at 12.7 million barrels per day now for production again, and you know OPEC's cutting output. They're kind of giving a nice gift in, in oil prices to shale producers, and but that unconventional mindset I was called that you know the flexibility and nimbleness of the service sector, but also the unconventional mindset that you guys have as operators, just has never been replicated abroad well. Um, they just cannot grasping that and that really comes from this uh, you know tinkering is American ingenuity on in the rock of thinking you know we're taking something that looks like this you know and cracking it uh, you know firm rock and getting this stuff out and it's it's phenomenal but hard for folks to comprehend it is it's a lot of don't understand it and uh, you know we first uh, started doing this development uh, with horizontal work and and basically everybody discounted, uh, the majors discounted, and, and certainly the international uh, uh, companies did, so, uh, and countries did, uh, the multinationals. Okay. So anyway, it's, uh, it's gained a, a much greater uh, under, understanding. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Everybody thought, you know, with the first horizontal oil field, uh, you know, basically at Cedar Hills, uh, uh, you know, area that we drilled up there, nobody would participate. Us and, uh, at that time, Meridian Oil Company uh, was the only company that ever drilled well in it. And everybody said, oh, this is crazy, this horizontal stuff never work. 
and never get oil out of uh, those wells. Mm -hmm. They're too tight. And boom, we know what happened from there. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, people are uh, gaining greater, much greater belief. Yes, they are. Uh, and over time. Um, but the, we probably need to be, I always say we need to keep telling the story and explaining it because, you know, I, I know that folks abroad, you know, folks that are importing our crude oil and natural gas, Japan, they know it. But it did take a long time to get, like, Japanese and other Asian buyers of, of like, liquefied natural gas. It took a long time for them to really believe in the geology that we do have, you know, a ton of natural gas. You know, we do produce over 100 billion cubic feet per day, and they're going to have it for a long time. It was hard for them to wrap their arms around. And I think it's important that we keep explaining how much we can produce for oil and gas, that we're, we're, we have the staying power to do this. Um, and I think that's, that's important. But can you talk more also about, so the Bakken is awesome, and that was your baby, and, um, but you're, you're Oklahoma, and you guys are in the Anadarko Basin. You have been. Um, it's a little more gassy, but you're also in the Powder River. I mean, you guys have expanded your portfolio. Um, and you, I mean, you have assets across the country. Um, I, know, I know the Powder well. So, it's a, geologists love that play because it's a, you know, it's, it's harder, it's more geologically complex than I think a lot of people appreciate. Um, you bought Samson's assets, I believe, right? In, yeah. the, in the powder? Um, so, yeah, I'd love to know more about your, you know, other assets and talk about the powder. Well, I, I think you, first of all, let's just talk about the, the evolution, if yeah. you will. Uh, you know, the Bakken was Ordovician Age rock. So I went back to my roots, uh, where's the rest of the Ordovician age rock, the Oklahoma, uh, you know, the Woodford. Mm -hmm. uh, came back to Oklahoma. Well, I didn't come back to Oklahoma, but well, we immediately began leasing uh, Woodford acreage in Oklahoma. Uh, so we, that's what basically okay. uh, fueled, uh, you know, most of the formations in Oklahoma. Uh, Woodford, uh, Mississippi and A right. stuff, uh, you know, uh, that, that generated a whole lot of oil and, and gas in Oklahoma. Uh, so we've established a uh, huge footprint in Oklahoma, we had a small one, uh, got a huge footprint there, we're the largest oil and gas producer in Oklahoma, we're the largest oil and gas producer and, and uh, both Montana and North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we go into some of these other basins with the same knowledge of what we want to look for there, mm -hmm. even the Permian. And so, uh, you know, applying our geologic uh, knowledge to Powder River uh, has been fun. And, mm -hmm. and we bought uh, and picked up footprint uh, acreage from uh, Samson, Chesapeake, mm -hmm. uh, several other acquisitions that we've made there. So, uh, basically established a footprint of one of the largest uh, owners of acreage in, in the Powder River. Yep. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, and that's what needs to be done there. It, um, yes. Really need to be consolidated and somebody that could uh, develop the infrastructure that's necessary there. And that's what we're doing. I believe your uh, your communications team last night was telling me you're continentalizing it, as you a phrase that you guys like to use. So you are continentalizing the 
uh, the Powder River. I worked for Anschutz Exploration, and I, I ripped through all those, every Turner well. Um, and there, you know, there were several hundred at the time um, a couple years ago in 2019. And um, and I, I agree with you. It is a uh, is a little more geologically complex, on, and you don't you had a lot of sparse operators, operators here, operators there, small operators, and so you couldn't get the momentum. Um, and it was always going to be the play, the next big play, but it couldn't get off the ground because you had all these tiny operators. And I think that consolidation um, and the staying power, um, being private probably helps too because you've got public guys saying, tell me your well results every quarter um, because you've got to test it, you've got to play with it. And, um, you know, 70-ish oil prices help a lot. Um, you know, these more conventional rock sandstones like the Turner, um, when you downspace those, I mean, they don't work. If your wells are too expensive, that just doesn't work. But when you get those well costs down, the repeatability factor, um, you know, you, you, when the well costs come down, you have a little more wiggle room for maneuvering. And then when prices are 70 bucks, all of those are sort of in the right spot. Yeah, I don't know it's a great spot up there yet with 70s, but, uh, you know, to be uh, sustainable and have growth, you may need something above that. Okay. More of an $80 oil play, you think? Well, that's more of an $80 uh, oil play for sure. Okay. But most of, most of our industry needs that uh, uh, to be uh, uh, really sustainable. You think that's because of the recent... We don't need 100. Right. Uh, probably or 90s, but we certainly need something 80s, mid-80s. Well, that's, the Saudis like that figure too, is the 80s. Um, you, do you think that the, is that, when you say that, that's different from what a lot of companies talk about publicly. So, um, and I know private companies have been more honest for the last two years about inflation um, and the pressures of inflation and those costs rising. So is that 80 figure that you're referencing, is that because of the cost pressures and the labor shortages um, and the inflation that we've seen in the, in the oil and gas space since, since COVID really? Well, everything costs more. You know, it, uh, today it it certainly does. I mean, inflation, uh, you know, <laughs> it's real. Uh, so it it all those add costs, and uh, you know what used to be, uh, it's not going to work. Seventies probably don't today. You know, it just costs more. Labor costs more. Uh, steel costs more. Uh, everything costs more. All the services. So you know, you have to. Yeah, think about that and allow for it. But the uh, powder is something that needs scale. It needs somebody big enough to, to do it. But every, every play, all those have been, uh, had some, some of the same headwinds. Mm -hmm. you know, everyone, yeah. Yeah, every, every one, everyone. initially. Yep, you know, whether it's like, takeaway capacity or, yeah, yep. Everything, uh, infrastructure, everything that you need. Uh, the Bakken did, mm -hmm. uh, Cedar Hills did, yep. every player ever been in. Uh, so you just got to work through that, develop yep. it, and go on. Very much agree. Well, I, I, don't, I know you're limited on time. So this is the perfect opportunity um, to sort of wrap up on the macro um, because we're leading into talking about inflation and where the economy is going. And, and you spoke this morning and you did mention the macro. And you've, you know, I followed you in your career and your, I followed, you know, earnings calls since I was, 
you know, for the past 10 years and, um, or longer. And um, you know, lots of people look to CEOs, especially in the industry, to see where their macro views. And you have always been, um, I won't say notorious, but you, you, you give macro calls um, and you bet on that. Um, so I, at private, you probably have more flexibility than this, but I would love to get your perspective on the macro environment because I, I think you mentioned this morning that, you know, the next two years look a little dimmer. Um, but I think overwhelmingly when I work with industry executives and talk with them um, and, you know, work with businesses and service companies, for the past couple of years I felt, of, you know, everybody's been incredibly bullish. Um, and it, a lot of groups think in the business of this very bullish thesis. And it, we have deteriorated oil prices. And, you know, I kept, you know, walking people through this of why our economy is deteriorating. But we do have a lot of headwinds. We still have a, a high inflation, you know, lack of low participation for labor force, or, or we still need to bring more people, pe people back. Um, and we have a tight labor market. And we have a lot of constraints. We have a lot of still fiscal lags. Um, and we are going into recession. I think globally, we have a lot of pains. You mentioned China. Um, a lot of pains in China. So the next couple of years could look more recessionary. Um, and I, so I'd love to know your, your global macro outlook and how, how you're thinking about that. And what does it mean for your prices? And what does that mean for you guys as a business? And do you stay the course or? Yeah. Well, I think you just said it just right, uh, stay stand of course. I mean, uh, I tend not to get terribly bullish. I'm optimistic. I'm a geologist. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's what, that's what you are. Uh -huh. You believe in fine oil and gas yeah. uh, and, uh, and, and do it profitably. Uh, but I don't uh, I get too far down either and slash my throat, you know, and in time, so you stay the course, uh, and uh, and uh, you know I, I think that next couple of years uh, we're in danger. We're building up a little bit of, of oversupply in the world with uh, Saudis having to cut back in some production. That's excess capacity building up, mm -hmm. and so that's that's dangerous. And uh, and when that starts happening, uh, if we oversupply the market. Market is uh, basically, uh, you know, the amount of uh, a product that everybody's using. Mm -hmm. That's market. Yep. That's uh, you know demand, and so if we oversupply that, things going to get soft, and prices going to get too low to to work, and and so it's a. Uh, uh, I think uh, I mentioned the word this morning: cautious. Mm -hmm. I think the industry needs to be cautious, and uh, the industry has uh, responded somewhat. Uh, cut about a hundred yep. rigs. Probably need to cut about that many more. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's a little bit painful when those rigs start hitting the ground, but yep. you know that'll bring costs down right. a little bit and and allow uh, people to continue to work. It's painful to articulate to the market too. I think you know to because they've had a bullish narrative so being able to say hey we're you know and i think it's i think companies do much better when they come out and they lead them you know it's it's what you do you you pre-lead earnings right or you tell them forecast the street what's going to go on i think companies probably need to get out there and say we we need to be reducing a little bit so that we can keep the people but if we're heading into recession this is something i always ask people because i i think it's going to be positive for this industry is i think this industry is most likely to oil prices are probably not going to crash um, I don't think they're going to 150 either. Um, but 
if, if oil prices aren't crashing, but the economy is slowing and unemployment goes up, and we know unemployment has to go up to curb inflation, um, it's going to go up in a recession. That allows for more people to this industry to hire more people, and it does help from an inflationary standpoint and a labor standpoint. Do you agree with that? I do. I, th I think that uh, uh, prices will come down, uh, you know, and we're seeing a, seeing a back off on rig prices and uh, a few people were a little bit uh, too aggressive yeah. uh, on the server side, and so we're seeing it back off a little bit. Need to come down a little bit uh, to make it work. Yeah. So. Well, awesome. Well, Harold, it's been awesome to have you on the podcast. A pleasure to actually meet you in person and uh, really appreciate your time. You bet. Good to be with you. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you.